the ship would have been steaming more or less on the course that we're on now and from her port side which is the other side of the ship that we're standing on now the airplane this German bomber would have came, come along uh, recognized the ship as a, as a unquote enemy ship the Irish dreamt up this legal nicety that if you were a German aircraft over Ireland, a, fly, a pilot of an aircraft, the chances were that you were flying a military mission because you'd have no other reason to be there. That was more or less the same on the Grapevine. My mum never heard nothing about it. It just came through people coming up from Oslair. The ship has been sunk this time. That's what they said. She's been sunk. My name is Shane. I grew up in Wexford with the sound of the sea in my ears and the taste of salt on my tongue. Shipping and marine life are such a part of the fabric of life in Wexford. It came as a huge surprise to me to discover that one of the greatest nautical disasters in the history of my home county was completely unknown to me. I set out to learn as much as I could about the sinking of the St. Patrick. The SS St. Patrick was a passenger ferry and mail boat owned by Fishguard and Rosslare Railways and Harbour Company, which traversed the route linking Rosslare in Wexford and Fishguard in Pembrokeshire in Wales. Although the ship flew a British flag, this company was half Irish owned. Despite the fact that she was not a military vessel, the St. Patrick was attacked on two occasions. Hello, how are you? Alice Hunt and her family are inextricably linked to the story of the St. Patrick. They experienced tragedy in both of these attacks. Alice is 81 years old, but the events that began in 1940 events involving her family sacrifice during World War II are as raw for her today as they were then. Well, it was my dad, Mosey Brennan, and my brother John, who was 17, and they were both on the same ship, but not at the same time. Uh, dad joined the ship, and he was he used to come up home every few days when because it was like the mail boat they were bringing their mail from Fishguard to Rosslare and then on the 17th of August I went up to a shop on the main street Foley's in Foley's and uh, Mrs Foley said to me in there I just heard she said about the St Patrick somebody been injured on it and we heard no more till dad was brought up from Rosslair, because she was coming into Irish water. She was in Irish waters. And uh, she was 15 miles, I think, from, or maybe a little nearer, I don't know. Uh, was closer to Ireland anyway than she was to England. What had happened to him? He'd been shot uh, by the Germans in a plane flying over. So a plane had swooped yes. down out of the sky and yes. had strafed the deck, as they call yes. it, with machine yes. gun fire, yes. and, and your dad, dad had been hit. Dad was hit, yes. And that was the reason of the accident. And they got him uh, and got him out at Rosslare Harbour. And it took him ages to get him from Rosslare Harbour to Wexford. And they brought him up in the... 
like a cattle truck, you know what they bring cows in years ago? That was what they brought him up in. And uh, they said there was no hope for him, that uh, he, he was too weak. He was traumatised so much from the delay from the ship to Wexford and from Wexford to the hospital. And then hospital it took them their time to decide what to do with him. And they amputated his leg. And he died that night. And uh, I was went up to to see him. We were all brought up to see him. And uh, he was just lying there on the slab. And uh, that was it. And then he was buried. And uh, things settled down a little bit. But the suffering of Alice's family didn't end there. In June 1941, the ship was attacked for a second time when it was bombed as she approached the Welsh coast. In the company of maritime artist and historian Brian Clear, I took a trip along the route the St. Patrick would have followed. When the ship left Rosslare, which was shortly after midnight, it was, uh, it was calm, real calm night. Uh, it was uh, a clear sky, starry, starry night. And as the voyage progressed, the, the sea got a little bit choppier. So by the time... We got to 11 miles off Strumblehead. It, it, it was far, far from rough, but it, it wasn't flat calm. It was just a little choppy. Not a lot unlike what we have there today now. That would have been about the same conditions. The ship would have been steaming more or less on the course that we're on now. And from her port side, which is the other side of the ship that we're standing on now, the aeroplane, this German bomber, would have came, come along, uh, recognised the ship as... A, as a unquote enemy ship and started machine gunning firing at if there's anybody out on deck or anything but it wouldn't mean anybody out on deck that hour of the morning for we're looking at what 20 past four on a friday morning friday the 13th of june 20 past four the daylight just about coming in astern of us just about breaking astern of us and it went. The plane circled around the ship, came back in, and dropped uh, what they refer call a stick of bombs, which is one, one bay of bombs, four bombs. Uh, some of these bombs hit the ship, amidships, forward of the funnel, after the bridge. And unfortunately, it is where the fuel tanks were, and the fuel tanks exploded, blowing the ship up, breaking it in half, and killing everybody on the bridge that time. Nearly all the ship's officers were killed and the crew who worked magnificently uh, managed to launch one of the lifeboats that wasn't damaged. All the lifeboats on the port side had been smashed to bits with the machine gunning. When the ship took a list then to port after the bombing, the lifeboats on the starboard side, they couldn't be launched because they fell inboard. But with a heroic event, two able seamen, uh, a John Kent and a Mr Kennedy from Wexford, managed to launch a lifeboat from the after end of the ship. 
get it into the sea, get the people into the lifeboat. And seven minutes at 4.33, the ship slipped beneath the waves. And just about at this spot here now, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Really hard because it's a beautiful day now. Beautiful day there. She's down there. On board were 45 crew and 44 passengers. 30 people lost their lives, 17 of them crewmen. Of the dead, 27 were Irish. Among those who lost their lives that fateful night was John, Alice's eldest brother. 17 years old, he had taken it upon himself to become the breadwinner for his mother and siblings. Taking a job on the ship his father had served on did not seem to daunt him. John came in one day and he got a little job after school. Uh, after school, he had a job at Haddon's the Medical Hall. Now, you wouldn't know that because it was a little chemist shop opposite Shaw's now. Right opposite that used to be Haddon's shop. And John got a little job taking medicines and delivering messages to people's houses. And he came in this day and he said, Mammy said... I think I'll go on the ship that Dad was on, if they'll let me. But Mum said, you've got no experience, and what are you going to do on there? He said, but I can get good wages and help out. So my mum let him go. Was there any sense that this was a dangerous thing he might be doing? Did any of you feel... That didn't come into his head. What about the rest of you? Were you worried? Well, we we couldn't. Why should we worry? Mm. Uh, I mean, it was something for him to decide. And my mum was his guiding angel. And so he he said he was going to do it, one or the other. And, of course, he didn't have any trouble getting on there because of his father. Was he strong-willed? Yes. He was a, a gentle boy in some ways, but he knew the strain she was under. And he was trying to be the man, if you like, of the house. And he'd been the oldest. So that was it. And he was only on from 90, he went to... I don't know how when he started on there, but it was got to be... Perhaps a September, October, something like that. I could be wrong. And he was only on till the following year, on the 13th of June, 1941. And that was when it happened. Alice's family weren't the only ones to lose a father and brother. The captain of the St. Patrick, Jim Faraday, went down with the ship. His son, a 20-year-old merchant seaman named Jack, swam back to the wreckage to try and save his father and was never seen again. What has caused Alice much pain and emotional turmoil is the failure of the Irish government to mark her family's anguish and the supreme sacrifice made by her father and brother, or even acknowledge the bravery of Wexford woman May Owen, who was honoured by the British shipping industry for her bravery in getting people to the lifeboats. We've just arrived in Fishguard off the Stena Europe, and we are, I would say, about three minutes off the actual ship. And here, right on the wall of the building, is a memorial to the um, St. Patrick. Um, there's a, an image of, of the ship. There's an anchor, the, 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 obviously the sort of universal symbol of seafaring. 
um, in a kind of a, a, a semicircle at the top of the monument and written in gold lettering it says in memory of those who gave their lives on the SS's St. Patrick, St. David and St. Andrew 1939-1945 donated in memory of SMG Fox 1993. So effectively what we've got here is a memoriam to everyone who lost their life as part of the shipping trade during the Second World War, 1939-1945. So here we are, as I said, three minutes off the boat, and here's a memorial right here in the building, um, which I think is very indicative of how, obviously, the shipping community on this side of the water feel about the St. Patrick Two questions began to form in my mind. First of all, why was the St. Patrick targeted in the first place? And secondly, why had the ship and its people been forgotten? The idea of Ireland as an, to all intents and purposes, active participant in World War II was all new to me. I had believed that while Irish people were certainly aware of the war which subsumed the rest of the Western world, and while there were certain isolated incursions into Irish airspace, the tragic bombing of Camp Isle, also in Wexford for example, Ireland, through its neutrality, remained mostly unaffected by the war. As I began to investigate Ireland's emergency, I started to see that I was hugely mistaken. Michael Kennedy of the Royal Irish Academy is an expert on Ireland's war history. I think the Irish population of Ireland became aware that the Second World War was going on around them and was going to affect them the day war broke out because on the evening of the 3rd of September 1939, a liner called the Athenia that was travelling to the United States was torpedoed off Rockall and the survivors from the Athenia were picked up by a number of ships and they were brought into Galway Harbour and the emergency plan for the city was put into operation and the defence forces were called out and the survivors were brought to hospitals. They were given what attention was needed. So that really brought the submarine war in the Atlantic and the Second World War right home to Ireland. Uh, immediately war broke out. Along the East Coast, they also would have been aware of the war because of the increase in British military activity and flights. And I think on the, again, the afternoon the war broke out, a British seaplane landed at Skerries. Uh, was refuelled and took off again. So the increased militarisation would have been very evident to the population of Ireland very quickly. Headlines in the Wexford newspapers of the day reflect the vigorous interplay between Irish people and German forces. In 1940, a German Heinkel bomber was chased inland by a British firefly. They engaged in a vicious dogfight over the town, soaring between the spires of Wexford's twin churches before making their way along the coast, heading south. The German craft came down over the Comoros. The pilot survived and was interned. The firefly departed Irish airspace to pursue adventure elsewhere. Such sights of aerial martial conflict, as well as the spoils of naval and seafaring disaster, were, in actuality, commonplace around coastal counties like Wexford. 
Dr Billy Colfer grew up around Hook Head in Wexford, location of one of Ireland's many Coast Watch bases. Where the Hook was located is very close to the main convoy routes off the southeast coast. So the convoys were passing quite close to here and there would have been sailors from the Hook area on some of those ships. So they were really aware of what was going on, even from personal tragic experience, because in some cases men were lost or torpedoed. Talk to me about that. Um, I mean, I've heard stories of... German U-boats in, in, in coastal waters around Wexford and that there was quite a bit, that there, were, there was a minefield uh, out in the shipping lanes as well? Yeah, it's literally minefields. I, I know of two, maybe three men who were lost at sea during that period on, on the convoys. My own aunt's husband uh, was torpedoed in the South Atlantic and spent 18 days in a lifeboat. He survived? He survived two out of 12. Ten didn't. And uh, he had frostbite and suffered for the rest of his life. But uh, he was a strong man, you know. So out in the very point here, you see where those foundations are? Yes. There was uh, one of the uh, Coast Watchers huts. And and my father and my uncle were actually working there as Coast Watchers during the war. And I remember, as a a very little lad, (laughs) uh, looking out through the telescope, you know. So, And they witnessed dogfights just over the harbour here. On, on two or three occasions. So there, there was a quite a, a, a connection between the local people. And I know it was at a distance, but there were elements that were experienced locally. And talking of the convoys, I remember shipping coming out of the harbour with the barrage balloons flying over them, you know, the, the big silver balloons with the steel cable coming mm. down to the ship, which prevented the planes from flying over the ship. But uh, another local element of that was that these barrage balloons were made of a very fine, waterproof, silvery material. And, of course, they were often shot down or fell down. They were recovered by the local fishermen, and they used them to make waterproof coats. So you had battleship Galactica-type dressing on on the lobster fishermen with this shiny silver waterproof suits. This was a good example of recycling, isn't it? (laughs) But I felt we were missing a major part of the story of the St. Patrick. She had been sunk by a German plane, one of the notorious Heinkel HE-111s. I wanted to know why the St. Patrick had been targeted, or if it might have been an accident. I needed to see a real Heinkel, one that flew raids over British and Irish soil and put the fear of God into those who saw its silhouette pass overhead. It took me some time. Most Heinkels did not survive the war. But finally I found one, in a hangar, in an airbase, just outside Berlin. I'm in Spandau, which is the oldest suburb of Berlin and I'm on my way to the Luftwaffe Museum. Made contact with them earlier this morning by email and maybe I'm being paranoid but I feel I've noticed a slight, I don't want to use the word thawing, but certainly a drop in enthusiasm in our visit. Previous phone calls have been uh, 
very cooperative and open and friendly. Uh, not so much this morning, so I must admit I'm a little bit concerned about what we are going to encounter when we get there. My fears proved accurate. When we arrived at the museum, we were met with a frosty reception. After much negotiation, our hosts finally agreed to show us the last surviving Heinkel in German hands, though our guide refused to tell us one word about it. But it's really not the case that I can tell you too much about it. Uh, that's okay. It's, uh... it's, it's green. It's camouflage green. There's a blue-ish underside. I can very clearly see the hole underneath where the bombs would have come out. There's, interestingly, there's, there's windows, one, two, three, four, five little windows along the, the bottom there. I presume that was so people could see what they were doing. Um, there's uh, the, the, the tail at, 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 with a, a, a swastika at, at the end. Um, it's funny, I look at it and the thing that occurs to me is it's almost um, it's almost cetacean. There's a slightly fish-like quality to the shape. It's actually, it's, you look at it and it's, it's quite beautiful. It's very streamlined. There is a sense of, of kind of raw power about it. You, there, there, there's, I'm, I'm a little bit awed. Um, the other thing that strikes me as I look at it is that the area, the cockpit where the pilot would have sat. Um, was this flown by one person? No. 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 How, many, how many people would have been involved? No. Better look it up. Uh, okay. um, um, if the cockpit, uh, it, the space is tiny. There, there there's, there's, doesn't look like a huge amount of room um, in, involved. Um, the propellers are—they're big. The propellers are quite big. I mean, there's the, there, there's a sense of of of, of size and, and grandeur there. Okay, I'm just going to have a quick look inside the fuselage just to see the inside. Okay, once you're inside, it's actually a little bit roomier than I would have thought. There's a, a very small, there's kind of one step leading you up into the body of the plane. And it's not as, uh, not as claustrophobic as I would have thought. It reminds me of, a, I suppose, almost the inside of a, a train. There would be less space, but that's what it reminds me closest of, being inside the, uh, the carriage of a train. Inside, it's, it's mostly grey. Um, the inside is kind of what we, I suppose what we would describe as battleship grey and it's metallic it's all metallic um, very much a working space this is somewhere where you would it's built to do a job very very clearly here's a train now Colonel Heinemann a military historian and officer in the German army agreed to talk to us about the war and about the St. Patrick The German planes had been designed for tactical air support to the army. So they were designed to hit targets with great accuracy. Um, and there are a number of instances when Heinkel 111s actually sunk ships. So this is not very, that rare 
I mean, it's never easy to hit a moving target. It depends on weather conditions and all sorts of things, but it is not unheard of. This particular night, the weather conditions were excellent. Yes, it was that a is. very still night, yeah. and they hit an absolute bullseye on this yeah, particular that is night. That, um, mm. British air doctrine aims at hitting large-scale targets, sort of rather roughly, with large bombers and large bomb loads. German aviation is, as I say, designed mostly as tactical air support to the military action on the front line and um, is designed to deliver smaller payloads but more on target. With the Stuka as the dive bomber, uh, the obvious peak of that particular tendency. Because um, we've heard people suggesting that the way the Hinkles worked was there was a, a man literally standing over a hole physically dropping the bombs. Now I know that that's completely well, inaccurate. There was a bomber, but he, the, the, he... There's a bomber, he has an optical bomb site, yes. and the whole thing is designed so as to hit rather small targets pinpoint. Um, what kind of training would your average German pilot have had? What kind of a person would he have been? Luftwaffe pilots are properly qualified, have had proper training. With the losses increasing, especially with the losses increasing on the Eastern Front, more and more young pilots have to be brought in, young men with barely enough training, which also leads to losses rising even further. The major source of the, or the major reason for the defeat of the Luftwaffe, however, is the technical and numerical inferiority uh, as opposed to British and American airplanes, both in numbers and technical quality. St. Patrick, the ferry that went down, was certainly flying British, the British Ensign. Um, it had a machine gun on its uh, rear end. Um, we don't know for certain whether it was painted Battleship Grey or not. There seems to be a conflict of, of opinion as to whether that was actually the case. Any commercial shipping that flew a British flag was considered a valid target and actually uh, there's never been any question after World War II as to whether that was legal or not. It was perfectly obvious that that was, a, that, that was normal. You have the British sinking a German passenger ship off Lübeck in the last weeks of the war which had thousands of concentration camp inmates on board and many of them got killed. Uh, that is a serious catastrophe, but it is not a war crime. Mm. Sinking commercial shipping in war is, is normal. That is not a war crime. It was time to go home. I travelled back to Wexford with the certain knowledge that the St. Patrick had been sunk, completely on purpose, by a highly trained soldier in a plane with advanced optic technology. Alice's father and brother were killed because they were working on board a ship bearing a British flag. The fact that it had a gun appears to have been inconsequential. Before I went back to Wexford, I made a quick stop in Dublin to talk to someone else whose life had been touched by the sinking of the St. Patrick. Charlie Bird. My link to the sinking of the St. Patrick, well, it goes back to my childhood. My mother was a Bridget Murray. Um, my father and mother both came from McCroom uh, in Cork. 
I can't remember first when it, in my consciousness, but I remember my mother uh, telling me that her brother, uh, Tommy, had uh, died uh, in, in a ship which had been sunk by the Germans. And um, it was only afterwards I heard about the St. Patrick. And it was, we call it the SS St. Patrick. I just knew in the back of my mind that... Um, uh, that he'd been in the British Army, something like that. She said he was he'd been home, uh, he'd been he was married, and that he was on his way back to England to join, rejoin his regiment. And uh, but it was obviously it was as I say, it was in the family folklore. Never had this wild picture in my in my in my head about um, my uncle Tommy, and I can't remember which funeral, but I. When, Aunts were dying and relatives were dying in in McCroom would go down to um, uh, to funerals there and I remember on one occasion being down there and um, a, an uncle of mine uh, who would have been a brother of Tommy's uh, it was Michael Murray I can remember he br- showed me the grave uh, Tommy's grave and what struck me at the time and it's always been in my mind ever since because I was back there recently was that it was a British war grave. That the small sort of square um, uh, ones I could see in any place in Flanders or any, in any part of the world where uh, a member of the uh, you know the British you know, Army or Navy or whatever you know they'd been buried. So you see this uh, in the um, I think it's called the Saint Coleman's grave in 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 Cremont. Not certainly that, but that's where it is. It's and um, and I was just back there recently again. Um, and it's funny that you rang me afterwards that I was back there uh, passing through West Cork and I stopped off at the graveyard to see you know, the graves of some of my relatives and um, I actually came across Tommy's grave again because it wasn't far away from another, another Murray grave The sea just off Stromble Head is deep, torn by currents and tossed by the wind. The green hills of Wales can clearly be seen from this desolate place, but with the twelve-mile expanse of water to traverse, land is still far, far away. We're here now on a beautiful sunny day, sunny morning. Uh, We're coming up to a position not too far now from where the St. Patrick was sunk. And I find, I'm finding it very, very difficult in my mind to understand the hatred, for want of another word, the hatred that there was between the German people, the German, the German machine and the, and the British at that time of a war. When you look around now, you've got beautiful clear skies. You know, it's hard, really hard to imagine what the conditions were like at the time. On the ocean bed, lulled by the music of whales and the gentle dance of rack and kelp, lies the St. Patrick, riven in two by a bomb dropped from the sky 70 years ago. In the Ireland of today, she is scarcely ever mentioned, and no memorial exists. We must ask ourselves why her name is all but forgotten. There's a memorial on the quay, and it's got the Carlogue, you name it, but it's all Irish ships. No mention of St. Patrick. 
because she was registered in England, so they don't want to know. I mean, until fairly recently, the men, the Irish men who were in the British Army in the First World War were hardly recognised, you know. So there may be a political aspect to it, you know, it's hard to know. British registered, crewed by Irish sailors and carrying passengers from both sides of the Irish Sea. The St. Patrick deserves to be remembered in the land which gave her her name and was the birthplace of almost all those who rest with her. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.